0: Welcome to the Talking Code podcast.
1: I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what
0: developers are saying. If you're a first time listener, make sure to go to talkingcode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Ben Orenstein of Thoughtbot and Upcase to talk about growing from a junior to a senior developer. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm awesome. How are you? Pretty excellent. So we'd like to start off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure.
2: So you touched on my employment. I've been at ThoughtBot for uh, about four years now, working on Upcase, which is our uh, online teaching platform for juniorish Rails developers who want to become seniors, for about two and a half years. And I do a fair amount of teaching and conference talks and things of that nature, a sort of blended programming plus teaching plus business these days, which has been a lot of fun.
0: Nice. So how did you end up becoming a developer to start? So
2: I studied computer science in school, in college, but not very rigorously. (laughs) uh, So I I was uh, asked to uh, take a little break. And so I did learn some programming in school, but not really that much. It really kind of happened on my own. So after I uh, was asked to leave school, I sort of clawed my way back into the tech industry. uh, And I did that by landing an entry-level programming job, which was in a terrible proprietary language, um, and started teaching myself Ruby on the side. And that was kind of what made the big change is when I landed my first Rails job. It was kind of a lot of like late nights is the is the answer.
0: Right, right. And this is a familiar kind of story where you have a lot of people who have computer science degrees that ended up doing other things on the side that actually ended up being what uh, helped them get their job or, yep. you know, learn what they actually needed to do things. Is, do you hear this a lot, too, with other people?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people come out of a, a computer science education without knowing a lot about programming um, or without having many skills that are directly useful in the day-to-day programming world. So I think most people actually experience this gap. Some people, if they are fortunate, the degree is enough to get them a position as a junior developer where they can learn
1: those skills. But I think some people have to do kind of what I did, which is teach yourself So for someone who's just getting started, would you recommend computer science to somebody with no programming experience? Almost definitely no. It would kind of depend on that person's goals, but probably not. I
2: actually am a huge fan of the model which is coming out, which has been pretty prominent these days of uh, boot camps. Like I think if you can go do uh, some sort of boot camp, I think that and you have the financial and time available, that's wonderful and a great way to get started.
0: Right. And we have actually an interview. I think our, the first one that we ever did with, was with the founder of Dev Bootcamp. My brother in law actually right now is going to Dev Bootcamp. Uh, he's in the at home portion right now. And, you know, with whatever time that I have free here in my army training, I'm asking him how things are going. He's like, yeah, I learned how to do pair programming for the first time today. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, that's pretty awesome. Uh, what they're doing, but how do you convince people who, you know, are convinced coming out of either some other degree program that they needed to get into their job that uh, a computer science degree isn't actually necessary for them to go. Because I, I find it, I have a really hard time with people who are very far away from the industry, uh, located in places that are not, you know, Silicon Valley or Boston or New York or, you know, places that have really strong developer communities that this yep. four-year degree isn't really necessary.
2: If they're looking to switch in, hopefully this is good news for them, so hopefully they want to hear it. But I would maybe just tell them some examples. Like, I do not have a computer science degree. Uh, A lot of thought butters don't have a computer science degree. A lot of successful programmers in this industry don't have one. It's certainly something that wouldn't hurt you, and there are a lot of interesting topics in the computer science curriculum, but I think just simply by example, you can look around and see it is definitely not required.
1: What'd you major in again,
2: Josh? Uh. Uh, philosophy and art history. (laughs) Right. And so, so there's the caveat, which is like certain places care about that. Like the larger the company, the more likely it is you have to get through an HR department before you can talk to someone technical and they would love shortcuts like credentials. Like if you want to go work for Google, I have a hunch you probably need a computer science degree and you probably want a master's to like really get through to them. But for most other companies, I would say the majority for sure, it's not as big a deal.
0: Right. Yeah, that's been my experience, at least. I I actually, I don't know if I should have this bias or not, but I almost have a bias against people that we look for who come in, you know, with just a computer science degree. And so I immediately start asking them what they've done that shows that they have experience because, Mm -hmm. man, you you get people in who have, you know, like a 4.0 GPA from a decent computer science program and, you know, they have trouble programming like even a tic-tac-toe game in JavaScript or something really straightforward totally it's insane
2: yeah i've i've used the analogy before that it's kind of like the difference between studying the physics of how a car engine works or being a mechanic like computer science to me is kind of like the car engine physics it's like i know a lot about this idea of how you might build engines and some of the trade offs of different engines and how it works at a really low level but if it broke i couldn't fix it myself and so we're typically, like, I, I think of us kind of as, as a mechanical level. It's like you got to have someone who's in there with their
1: hands dirty. Right. And for some contrast, I know I studied computer science and I was extremely frustrated that we weren't learning how to build websites or learning how to build apps, which at the time were, were like starting to take off.
2: Yeah. And and there's a counter argument, which is computer science gives you a foundation. They don't want to teach you specific technologies because they're likely to go out of date. And so they're going to teach you how to learn and they're going to teach you things that are going to not change over time. And that's actually a reasonable argument. Like, I think if you want to go to college and spend four years, like that's not a terrible use of time. But if you are an adult switching careers, it is not the shortest path. And so since most people want to get there faster, it's not a great option for those kind of people.
0: Right. I, I've had this conversation a lot with people. I don't know if I've had it on this podcast. And I'm sorry if you've heard it a million times already. But my degree in philosophy, I think, actually ended up helping me in a lot of the ways that you talked about mm-hmm. learning how to learn. So, well, it helped me in two ways. One is that I learned how to be a critical thinker. I learned how to learn about very diverse topics that, you know, were really, really complex. You know, the, the classes that I had ranged from philosophy of ethics to philosophy of neuroscience to philosophy of physics, even. Mm. Um the other thing that I learned was logic, which is the foundation of most of what we do in development, right? I mean, you mm. end up having logical flow of a program. And um, that was really beneficial coming in is that I already knew sort of like the basic way of thinking about writing code. And then it was just mm. a syntactical thing of picking it up, trying to translate you know, from mathematical logic or formal philosophical logic into machine code, essentially. So th- that was great. That that means that you know I'm not really sure even that the computer science program specifically is uh, the the sure. way to go for that.
2: Yeah, I, I, there's definitely some benefits to college. Just don't spend too much on it, but it's definitely it's a pretty good thing. Like if if I were going to give myself advice, uh, if I could give myself my 18 year old self advice, it would be do a ton of side projects with interesting people and program a lot. But you don't need a curriculum for it. So go to a cheap school and major in psychology because that's where all the women are and (laughs) uh, do a a ton of interesting side programming projects and you'll come out and you'll be fine
0: it's funny I actually had this whole conversation with there were two like E6 sergeants here that I was in this uh, uh, like tactical operations center with the other day and both of them had uh, 17 year old sons that were about to go off to school and they're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out like where their son should go and what the important decisions were and I was telling both of them like look neither of them are going to be very excited to hear this but you should probably let them know that honestly their first two years they might as well do as a community college that go up as a filler to another school And then go from there Mm -hmm. to a four-year, really, really cheap state school. They're going to learn those good qualities that we talked about, about learning how to learn, learning about the world, learning about other people. They're probably still going to keep those same friends, and they're also not going to end up in debt. And then from there, if they want to end up getting into a field like this, then you know, go out and learn the relevant things that you need to know outside of school. Sure. So I'd like to talk about some of the important milestones that you go along from zero, from scratch. You know, I'm just starting to figure out that I'm interested in web development or iOS development and where I go from there to becoming a senior developer, which wow, I I know that isn't A, a process that's really ever finished. But, you know, I know that there are a lot of those milestones along the way. So maybe we can just sort of work down the line here. Where do we get started Mm -hmm. at from having zero experience? So you want, like, tactical recommendations, like sites to use? Is that what you're looking for? More like how to think about what to do,
1: where to go. Like, what's good to focus on? What should you kind of put off till later and not worry about? Well, that's a pretty... It's a a really deep topic, but I'll I'll try to throw out some recommendations.
2: Starting at the very beginning. So I, I think... The best thing you can do to increase your odds for success for this whole journey is to find people who can give you some support. So learning web development is a very deep and complex task. And so having someone that has already done it will be incredibly useful to you. So uh, I guess my first advice would be to try to make a couple friends that do what you want to do or are at least a little bit further along on that journey than you are. So I think the first thing I would recommend is actually a social thing, which is try to find a meetup in your area. Like if you're interested in Ruby on Rails or if you don't even know what you're interested in yet, pick that because it's popular and start going to a meetup and start trying to just become friends with people. Because you it's really, really useful to have someone to ping and ask a question um, or to get an email answered or something like that. Because there's so much you don't know in the beginning that just having a resource like that will make a huge difference.
0: Okay, that makes sense. What if you're not in an area that has a meetup? I mean, do you just... Try and start making friends on the internet, then.
2: Yeah, you can. There are a ton of things online. There are forums and Slack channels and things like that that you could try to lean on. None of them are going to be as good as in person relationships, I think. So people are generally pretty friendly, and you could they'll ask, they'll answer your questions on Twitter and whatnot. But it really helps to have one or two people that know what you look like and smile when they see you and things like that. I think the connection is just much stronger.
0: Sure, that makes sense. How do you end up getting enough of that person's time to really be of use to you as a mentor? So don't think of them as a mentor at first. Think of them as
2: someone that you can ask the occasional question to point you in the right direction. Because in the beginning, you don't have much of a relationship. And so saying, hey, would you be my mentor? No one wants to say <laughs> to that. <laughs> right? Because it's, it's a big open-ended commitment. It's not clear how much time it's going to take. They don't know if they're going to like you. If you go around pitching people as, hey, would you be my mentor? You're going to get a lot of no's. But if you go to the you know your local Ruby meetup and say there's two meetups a month and you go to four of those and you keep saying hi to the same people and trying to have conversations, then eventually you develop friendships. And you'll have a relationship or two that you feel comfortable sending the occasional email or whatnot and just saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about, try- I'm trying to learn, I don't understand how this database thing works at all. Like, do you have a great book or a site you use to learn this? Uh, and just get the occasional pointer in the right direction. But the reality is, so, I mean, whenever possible, get some outside help like this. But the thing to be aware of is that this journey is primarily a solo one unless you can go hit up a boot camp which I'm a huge fan of or like something like dev boot camp or Turing school or something along those lines you're gonna be doing a ton of work on your own and you just kind of need to expect that and and ex- expect that there's going to be a lot of struggle and a lot of confusion and that you're slowly trying to pick apart this puzzle
1: I thought you made an important point about finding people who are a few steps ahead of you because those people they their memories a lot more clear about like what they just went through versus Somebody who's much, much further along, first of all, they're probably harder to get because they have less time. But someone who's a few steps ahead, they can em- empathize a lot more and kind of point you to what they just did, maybe even last month.
2: Yep. And also, I think this, the story on this is getting better. So like when I was learning, it was primarily a solo effort. But I think more and more people are trying to learn. And so more and more support has been appearing. So something I thought of as you were talking was uh, Code Newbies, which is this group of people that gets together and tweets support at each other. Like they study similar things on certain days. Like, you know, what are you learning on Monday and Tuesday is like, you know, what are you happy about or frustrated with or something like that. It's kind of like an online Twitter support group. Plus now they're expanding into like a, I think they have a forum and a Slack channel and all this. But it's a group of people who are there to give each other support on this journey because it is hard. So I think the story around this is, is getting a lot better. And so maybe the way it was for me is not going to be the way it is for other people, which is would be great.
0: You're absolutely right about that. I mean, I've experienced this secondhand, but my mom, who is uh, 60 years old right now, is learning how to program, and she's getting into all these like communities. I just got an email from somebody that she ran into who wants to talk to me about like my experiences with going from you know zero to where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing, like watching that community spring up because I'm. Not sure when I started, that support would have been there for her, which is just amazing that we've grown that way.
2: Yep. And also, I think if you are like an underrepresented group in the tech field, there are more and more specific groups out there to support you. So like maybe go looking for that if you fall in that category.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is exactly where my mom started, because she wasn't, you know, she was really super hesitant that people would kind of shut her out, which I explained to her that, you know, this has been changing in the tech world. But, you know, she still went right to like Girl Develop It and groups like that from the get go, which was really, really encouraging for her to see all these other people doing this exact same thing. Absolutely. Okay, so, you know, I've Started getting into programming at this point. How do we even define what a junior developer is? How, how, like, what's the range from zero to junior? When does somebody actually become a junior developer?
2: That's a great question. I don't. I don't know. This is like. I mean, this is the classic thing of language, which is like it's just kind of what we decided is, <laughs> right. and, and and we've decided different things. I was thinking about this last night, actually. Like, to a huge swath of the population, if you say Google it, that means you know go to the Google website and search for something. But to a small person, percent of the population, that just means search for anything on the internet somehow. Right, (laughs) right. So like, language is is kind of always imprecise, even if it seems pretty clear. So there is no definition of junior developer. In my mind, it roughly means like I, I think of someone that has graduated a, you know, significant boot camp as a junior developer, someone that has deployed an application and it runs and I can go in there and click on it and it does stuff. That's probably about when you start entering junior territory, you're starting to get your bearings, I guess.
0: Okay, so I'm at this stage now. I've at least managed to go from something to a deployed application. Where do I start looking to uh, level up my skills? What sort of things should I be concerned about at this point? I'm past syntax. I'm past being able to get things run. Where are my primary concerns now?
2: It depends on your goals. I mean, are you trying to get a job? That's a good question.
0: Well, what different kind of goals have you seen out there for people who are coming out of being a junior developer? I know there are people trying to start companies. Right. People trying to just find work. Yeah. I think
2: that the, I would say those are the two big ones. So you're trying to do your own thing. You're trying to join another company, or maybe you're also just trying to. Build up a level of empathy for a team. Some people know they're looking for a technical co founder, and so they want to demonstrate some knowledge in that area, but they know they're never going to be experts or so they don't want to be experts. So, not to be too pitchy, but like in, in the Rails world, that's basically what we built Upcase for. Right. Was the sort of post code school, post boot camp. I'm now a junior developer and I want to learn more best practices. So our take on it is, you know, the next thing you need to learn is how do professional level developers, people that have done this a lot, how do they approach problems? You start to see the same problems come up over and over. So you test different solutions and come up with some favorites. And those are good things to learn. But I mean, that's, that's Ruby on real specific. It could, you could be learning any language. So I guess I would sort of transition into knowledge seeking mode around. How do I do things well and not just get them done, period? Right. So really useful at, that, at this stage is like these people that are further ahead of you, again, are, are useful even more now because they can do code review for you. So if you can tackle a problem and then go to your meetup and say, hey, I, like, I wrote some code the other day, would love to get somebody's input on it if I can. And just having a, a five minute code review with people can be really enlightening. Like, oh, I don't usually use this sort of thing because it usually has these downsides. So you might want to look into this like that right there is, is worth its weight in gold. The, I think that's mostly a mindset shift. It's get away from just like, oh, it works, I am the best, to, okay, it works, good job, <laughs> like you still are, you're still doing well, but now try to think about, did you do it in a way that it's going to be easy to change later? Did you write it in a way that it's clear? Uh, are you making use of the frameworks or languages features uh, in a smart way? Uh, and, and just sort of raise the bar on yourself a little bit.
0: Yes, absolutely. And this is, I'm glad that Upcase is doing this. And, you know, I'm curious whether or not there are similar gap fillers out there mm-hmm. in, you know, other languages. But within Rails world specifically, you're really fulfilling a need because, so I started out as a PHP developer. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember going on Stack Overflow back in like 2010. And asking this really broad question about, like, what are best practices around, you know, PHP? <laughs> um, I started as, like, this mega thread, like, you know, really pumping people up, like, let's g- go ahead and put together, like, you know, this book-sized resource. And people started contributing to it, and then the question got shut down immediately. Of course. It was just, like, off-topic and not useful. <laughs> and I'm like, like, wh- wh- where am I supposed to find this information? How is this not useful? And it's like, well, it's too broad. It's, like, not specific enough. It's not, you know, one specific answer to a programming question. Question. right like what well, what do i do now <laughs> you know where do i go so have you seen that have you seen that like this was the the driving factor behind starting Upcase was that there wasn't really resources for this?
2: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Upcase kind of came about as a little bit as an accident because we, had, we wrote a book and we had these workshops and we sort of one day stepped back and said, hey, we, we're doing a lot of teaching online. Like, What if we turn this into a community and gave you know, people access to everything and then turn it into more of a curriculum? So it kind of backed into it, but we decided fairly early on that our focus was going to be on that spot. Like you, you're, You've hit junior, you've hit like intermediate-ish, and you want to keep going. Code school and the like do an awesome job of the first, and, and boot camps do an awesome job of teaching you the early stuff. Like, we have no interest in, in competing out there because we think it's well served by the existing solutions. And also, it's not what we specialize in. Like, Papa hires expert level developers, and we specialize in, you know, doing the hard stuff really well. And so, given that that's what we're learning day to day and focusing on, that's what we want to teach. And we think that that's actually rarer. Like, we think it's going to be harder for people to compete with us on that kind of thing because we have this knowledge from building literally thousands of Rails applications. And that's just not something you can kind of uh, fake. So that's where we want to be. We saw the need and we saw that it, it fit nicely with what we know.
1: Yeah, and I, like, I do see there's a huge gap between like, these boot camps that are churning out tons of junior developers. There's not enough resources, frankly, to go to the next level. Could you give some examples of what an intermediate developer might be doing that a junior developer isn't? One thing I, I
2: notice is that something changes when you start extracting more methods and classes. Like the difference between junior and intermediate to me is that the intermediate starts to write methods that are like one or two lines, while the junior is still cramming like twenty in there just to make <laughs> it work. Like the the junior is still of kind of that mindset, like I, uh, I just got to make this thing work. And somewhere something clicks, and the person starts to realize, like, hey, like this code is easier to read when I make it out of smaller pieces. And hey, I seem to have fewer bugs when I don't make my methods twenty lines long. Things like that. That's kind of like the the easiest signal to me is like I'll just I'll just start surfing through a repo and looking for long methods and big classes. And the more experienced the person, the fewer I find.
0: That's funny that you mentioned that because my brother-in-law was asking me, you know, maybe four or five weeks ago now. He was like, the one thing that I just still don't understand is like, when do you start like creating new classes? And like, what's the purpose of them? And why do I need like all these other methods? And like, I want to do it. And he's like, I'm feeling like I need to. And I was like, that's exactly like the feeling that you should be having right now is why. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. as soon as you start to figure out how to answer it, I mean, it's pain driven. Like you said, you know, as soon as you dis- discover that, wow, this is really difficult to read and I'm having a lot of failures or wonky things go on and I need to isolate them and test. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to get there by just, you know, broadly understanding like, oh, these are generally like rules for breaking down classes. There's no hard and fast approaches to doing those things. It's just things that we've discovered over time ourselves based on pains we've all had. Yeah, totally. And you you touched on testing there for a
2: sec, which I also consider sort of a a watershed moment in your development career. I do almost all of my development as a test driven style. I wouldn't write code for my job without doing it, because it's it's worth the time to me. And so I think when you start practicing that uh, TDD, or at least, you know, testing after the fact, that's another big moment where uh, hopefully some light bulbs go off and you go, oh my gosh, like I, this is catching my errors and this is it's forcing me to write better code. Like that's huge too.
1: Right. Could you talk about that distinction real quick? Test driven versus writing the test after.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with writing the test after. So the test after is you write some code and you poke at it in the browser until it works, and then you write a test that automatically pokes at it and make sure it works. So the code comes first and the test comes second. Test-driven development, you flip that order. So the first thing you do is you write a test that is going to poke at your code and make sure it works. And of course it fails because you haven't written the code yet. And so then you write the code and then make the test pass. And TDD is one of those things that feels backwards and weird when you're new to it. But you quickly get used to it and you realize one of the reasons for it is that writing the test first means that you will, in response, try to write code that is easy to test. And it turns out that code that is easy to test is often better than code that is not easy to test.
0: That makes sense. And I actually, I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I learned test driven development at least in Rails. Um, I did a little bit of it in PHP before, but really wasn't understanding like the big picture behind it. But I learned TDD from you, actually.
2: Huh, awesome. How? How? Like, what,
0: what was it? Uh, it was through um, a lot of the test-driven Rails, was maybe what it was called. Awesome. Back when it was on ThoughtBot Prime. Is that right? Is that the title? Yep. Th-
2: yeah, test-driven. Uh, we still have that on Upcase, actually.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I remembered it. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so I became a Rails developer in 2012. So I've been at it for uh, basically almost three years now. Mm-hmm. And I really, like, was struggling with the idea of TDD uh, because, you know, I, there's a very vocal community out there. I, I wouldn't even call them a community necessarily, but a group of unassociated individuals who are loud about the fact that tests, you know, don't make any sense. And, you know, why waste your time on them when you can just go manually test it? And I never really understood that because I was like, well, why don't I just write the test once rather than doing it myself over and over and over again? Like, yep. isn't isn't that the point of what we're doing in our jobs, uh, writing things that computers can run multiple times over again mm-hmm. for us. But, you know, now I end up coming to some weird, you know, like philosophical issues, or not really philosophical, but just practical issues around doing like code spikes and trying to look at something that I've never done before. And I don't really know how to write the test around. Do you ever find yourself in those situations where TDD isn't exactly the right approach for what it is that you're doing when doing something really, really new to you?
2: Totally. And you touched on it. So you use the word spike, which is what I call it as well, meaning something that I write as a means of exploring something and then is immediately thrown away. If I'm trying to do something I've never done before, and I really just want to explore, I might just open like the Rails console or IRB and poke around. Or I might say I'm going to write a a little prototype uh, with no tests because I don't really know what it's going to look like yet. And then once it works roughly how I want it to, I will delete the whole thing and then TDD a solution now that I know what it's going to look like. And so that is a totally valid approach. It takes a lot of discipline. I would say it's very, very, very hard to actually delete the spike. <laughs> right. And so I, I consider this like a very advanced technique because it takes an incredible amount of discipline to actually delete it. Everyone wants to then just make the spike work um, or like maybe fill backfill tests. And that's just, it's, it's not a great approach. And so this gets to... One of my ideas about learning, which is when you're new, you should have hard and fast rules, even though those rules are imperfect. So I would tell someone who is learning TDD, who's at the level of of ready to learn TDD, TDD everything, even if it hurts, because you are too new to understand when you shouldn't do it. And so I'm going to give you this rule, even though it's an oversimplification, it will make you write enough of the time that you should follow it anyway. And then later, as you gain experience, you will know when it's time to deviate from that rule.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I have a kind of selfish request now. I would love it if you guys ended up doing a code spike, you know, how-to, where you actually go and try and make something work that uh, really wasn't working without TDD from the the get-go, and honestly even see the divergent paths that it could take. So what happens when you go and backfill and test? What does the code look like at the end Mm. versus what does the code look like if you actually delete it all and then start from scratch knowing what you now know? That would be really, really interesting to see, I think.
2: Yeah, that's cool. I think that there are not enough A-B type tests in the programming world. Like, what if we tried it this way and this way at the same time?
0: So that, that would be interesting. Yeah, that, that would be awesome please, please, please do it. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to, you know, you've got somebody who has maybe deployed their first application, they're not working somewhere yet, you know, either they've gone to a dev boot camp, and this is a little easier for these folks, but maybe somebody who's self taught, they don't have the same hiring opportunities that those people at dev boot camp have just because of the connections that those groups have. But where do you start to look for, you know, your first job, if that's what your goal is? How do I go out and convince somebody that I'm good to go?
2: Uh, I have a blog post on this exact topic, which you can link, but I will, I'll summarize. The most important thing is actually code quality. So when you're trying to get a job, generally the currency is show us a code sample. So you want to have the best quality code sample that you know how to make today. I've actually seen people submit code samples when applying for jobs and saying, by the way, I know that this whatever thing is not as good as it could be, but you know, something, something, something. And to me, that's, that's an anti-pattern. Like you should, if you know it could be better, why didn't you just make it better before you sent it to us? <laughs> um, so get a sample that's the best quality sample you know how to make. And then the next thing is actually gets back to that idea of uh, a social support network, which is hopefully you already have friends that are doing what you want to do. But if not, you should really go make some. Jobs tend to flow through personal relationships. Some job openings never even get posted. They'll just say, you know, oh, by the way, we're hiring in this office, so if you know someone who's great, you know, have them apply. And so starting to make those connections will be really huge. And you can also get that person to look at your code before you submit it, potentially, and say, hey, like, are there any red flags in here? Do you see anything that stands out as you know, being very new looking or something like that? I also think you should be blogging a ton. Like, if you are seriously in the market for a programming job, you should be trying to like, write a blog post basically every day. Or, you know, whatever schedule you can maintain that's aggressive and documenting what you're learning. Because one of the things that you're going to be judged on is passion. So early on in your career, you don't have a lot to show. So you have some sort of code sample and you have a little bit of experience, but there are a lot of people just like you. And so there's a lot of people graduating boot camps right now and they, all their portfolios are going to look kind of the same. So unless you're a total standout and you're crushing it uh, from a code quality point of view, the next thing you really want to demonstrate, and you want to demonstrate this regardless, is uh, passion and a willingness to contribute back to the community. So writing blog posts and, sh- and teaching what you've learned already is really huge um, that's, that's just one good way to demonstrate passion, but that idea of adopting a mindset that says, there are lots of people like me, I want to stand out and be you know, the person that's unique for reason X. Start thinking about what that reason X might be. So maybe your blog is going to be specifically about accessibility, and I'm gonna write, you're going to write four posts a week on accessibility for developers, how to make your, your site more accessible, and that'll be like your thing. Uh, and then you have something to sort of play up, uh, that's your unique quality. Um, or maybe you're going to do something, maybe you have, you have your, your heart set on one specific company. So maybe you build a web app that is targeted at them somehow. Like you, maybe you build like, uh, a landing page about like, you know, why I, Ben, should get hired by this company. Or you, you, you somehow target them and make it clear to them that you are not just passionate about getting a job, but getting a job at their company. But the important thing is the mindset. It's, okay, there are 100 people, just like me, roughly, who are applying for this job. I want to be known as the person that did this thing. What is that thing? Now go do it.
0: Yeah, and I actually like that you mentioned writing all these uh, blog posts and things because for me at least, and I think this is true of a lot of people, writing about what you're learning teaching other people about what you're learning, even if you don't think anybody is reading or learning from it, really helps you learn. So it's a good way of reinforcing what it is that you're trying to learn in the first place. So Absolutely. There's no reason not to do it. I want to go back a second to something that you said earlier, um, which was people often will submit code to you, code samples that they say they know could be better. And I'm wondering whether you think the reason for that isn't that they know that they could do it better but that they have this you know we talk a lot in the community about imposter syndrome um this feeling that you know they know that you probably know a way to do it better hmm. but they're not really sure how to go about doing that and feel uncomfortable showing you something that they know is inferior do you feel like that has anything to do with it
2: i guess it could right yeah so like you're applying to a job you know that someone more experienced is going to read your code my advice would be don't pre apologize. Don't, <laughs> right. you know, like it's likely that there are going to be things that I'll see that I wouldn't do, or I'll, I'll, I'll say, okay, that's something that a, a, a less experienced person tends to do. But that's okay because you are a less experienced person. Like you don't have to hide that fact exactly. So it wouldn't surprise me to see that, like, oh, I would have done this slightly differently than this person. And this technique over here to me looks like the, the choice that someone would make that is less experienced. The thing that would stand out to me is this person knows that this choice was not optimal and did not fix it right that's the difference to me
0: i mean i i go back to when i was working on my startup which is why i started learning how how to program in the first place my first startup that i did and you know i was running out of money i i think i'd lived on like fifteen thousand dollars that i'd gotten from graduate student loans for like a year Mm. and You know, my wife, who we were not married yet at the time, but, you know, we're kind of starting to freak out at this point and say, we can't go on like this any longer. I really need to figure out what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And I started looking for PHP jobs. And the first job that I went to, that's exactly what I said. I was like, I know this could be better, but uh, (laughs) it definitely wasn't I know that I could do it better. It was I know that you know That this could be better and please teach me I want to be here and learn yeah I never got that job and I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if that was part of the reason behind it because I just didn't know I didn't know what I didn't know um I've been doing everything that I could on my own at that point
2: well so so to me that's that's okay the thing that you said is the is the good kind of not knowing which is I wrote this the best way I know how I just don't know and I'm still not happy with it but I don't know how to make it better right that's 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 okay
0: But I'm pretty sure when I said it, it was like, you know, the sheepish pre-apology, like, don't run me out of the building for having written code like this. Yep. Who knows? Right. So you talked about some things that you look for when you're hiring junior developers. And, you know, you said, obviously, code quality and these code samples, passion is another thing. Are there any other qualities that you look for when making that hiring decision?
2: So is this for like a junior position, you mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we actually aren't running this program anymore, but we uh, used to run a program called Apprentice.io where uh, we were taking junior developers, uh, which was new for us because we typically only hired uh, experienced Rails developers. And so our target when we were hiring for apprentices was someone that we think could be a ThoughtBot level expert developer within three months, uh, which is how long the apprenticeship was. So our goal was actually to hire all of our apprentices as full time developers, or at least uh, if they didn't want to come work here, help them find some other job. Our goal was to find people who we thought were close and with good mentorship and you know, a lot of full time work could get there. So that's the high level goal. So I guess that breaks down into, you know, does this person seem like they are motivated? Do they show an eagerness to learn? Do we think that they're going to make good use of the opportunities we give them? Like, are they brave enough to say, hey, can you pair with me on this? Or can I pair with you on whatever you're working on? Are they also comfortable taking something on their own and going off and,
1: and learning it themselves? So we're looking for signs that, that indicate that they'll be successful in that way. So how can you create a work environment for these junior developers that helps them get better? I can tell you some of our specific tactics. So ThoughtBot has a culture of learning and improving for everyone. So
2: I think we didn't have very far to go. Uh, like We expect everyone to be getting better all the time. And one of the ways we do that is we have investment time. So actually everyone at ThoughtBot takes uh, Friday to do investment time where you're expected to work on things that make you slash the company better over time. So maybe that's writing blog posts, maybe that's maintaining open source projects or releasing new ones. It could be reading a book on a new thing or watching some screencasts, playing with a new language, uh, experimenting with something on a client project. But we explicitly set aside time for that kind of investment in the future. And so we already have, I think, a pretty strong culture of improvement that way. And so we just, we added a couple small things on top of that for the apprentice program. One is that you have a dedicated mentor. So someone that you're going to sit next to, you're going to work on real work with them. So you will pair program with them on their client work. They will assign you real things to do. You'll have your own uh, sort of, we call it a breakable toy. So you'll have your own app that you're working on where you can experiment on things without fear of wasting time or client dollars or things like that not that apprentices are, but would bill at all. And we would switch mentors for you every month. So you would spend uh, over three months, you'd get three mentors. Uh, so you would see different projects, different working styles, different technologies. And then I think there was like a once a month or some, some, some sort of re- recurring meeting with you and your mentor and maybe someone who's kind of like running the apprentice program to just check in and say, how's everything going? Are you getting what you need? Are you uh, on tr- to learn the things you want to learn through your apprenticeship?
1: That sounds great. I'm going to steal a few of those.
0: Yes, please do. There's an old blog post of yours that had a quote that we uh, both really loved, Hmm. which was, to become a better programmer, one must practice like a musician. Huh. That's an can old you, one. Wow! Yeah,
2: that's like my first blog post ever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> People still read them.
0: Yeah, I was I was about to say really old, and I was like, I'm not sure if it's like the oldest, so I'm not going to say it. But
2: <laughs> it's, it's not quite the oldest, but it is eight years old or so. So,
0: <laughs> do you still believe that's the case? And if so, can you explain what you meant by that?
2: <laughs> Let me explain what I meant, and then I'll see if I still agree with it. So I've I studied piano uh, as a child, and in the, the progression of learning to play a piano piece, you start by isolating things. So the final product is two hands played at full speed. And so the way you would start is one hand played at, you know, one-tenth speed. And so you would isolate the skills required. And so I would just do, just practice the right hand, just the first 10 measures, and do it at really slowly. And then once I did that, I would up the complexity in some way. I would do it faster, um, or I would add measures, and then I would, you know, do just the left hand. And then when I felt really good with both of those, I would put them together. And each of these phases would take a while. Each one would be a struggle, and then eventually it would become not a struggle. So in the beginning, you're thinking very, very hard about every individual thing, meaning I have to think about what note is next and how long it's pressed and how loud it should be um, and what the next one after that's going to be and how do I need to prepare and which finger do I use for it. And then I would slowly start to make those things happen automatically. And so once you have mastered the mechanics and the fundamentals of the piece, instead of thinking about what note is next or and how loud should it be, you start thinking about how do I make this beautiful? Like what will make this sound musical? And what is the emotion of this section? And how can I cause that emotion in someone listening to it and myself? And like how can I make myself feel that emotion as I play it? And there's this beautiful shift that happens and eventually you're not thinking about the mechanics at all. And you're thinking about how this section makes you, reminds you of how you felt when your grandmother died. And that is just, it's such an amazing thing. And so to to me, that was a nice model for skill acquisition of many kinds. In the beginning, you're focused very much on mechanics. And you can't think about the big picture at all because your brain is too focused on those things, which are not natural yet. But as you master more and more skills, your brain is free to move up a level of abstraction or uh, a level of complexity and think about things at a higher level. Uh, and that's when really great things start to happen. But the basic technique there is, is isolation. In the beginning, you, it's just one hand. It's, you're doing sort of a practiced exercise. It's not very fun and it doesn't look like what the final product will be, but you have to do it to get
1: it out of the way so that you can stop thinking about it. And, and uh, yeah, I guess I still agree with that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that's interesting because I, I know they did some studies. I don't remember off the top of my head comparing the top performers to the not so top performers um, uh-huh. and the one the top performers what they would do is they would focus on one measure at a time and mo- they would spend more more of their time like in struggle mode and the other ones they would kind of like if they got stuck or something happened they would go back to the beginning of the piece and they would yeah. play it and it would they'd just play all the easy stuff so it would take them a lot longer to get better yeah that
2: focus on something that is just at the edge of your ability i think is really important and that, that's a difficult goal because your, your ability is always changing. But I think that's how you keep getting better and better and better, is you keep seeking out new challenges and saying, what's a thing that I, that's hard but accomplishable for me right now?
0: Yeah, you, you stole my comment, Venkat. Took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I've been really like, reemphasizing that to people. In particular, I've been learning French while I've been here because I'm about to go to France for mm. uh, almost four weeks. And there are a lot of people who saw me doing this like, bro, you're in school, right now. Like, why are you studying things on your break time? Mm. It's like, it's fun. It's fun. I really enjoy doing it. And so other people got really interested in it. they were like, yeah, you know what? We, we do have a lot of downtime here. I kind of want to learn a language too. So now we've got like 15 people out here with Duolingo on their phones on breaks, just like, you know, talking into their phone, <laughs> like really quietly in Spanish or French or whatever. they <laughs> But a lot of them felt like, you know, they, they'd been there before at that point of struggle where things were starting to get really difficult for them. Um, and so I've had this conversation repeatedly where I said, you really do need to do exactly what you said, which is just push your limits just past where, you know, you think you can't go any farther. And mm-hmm. you know, they're like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm like, come in every day and just say a sentence to me. Mm-hmm. You know, start saying things to people in a language who don't even speak it. Yep. You know, like I- I'm actually I'm that annoying guy that like says something in French and then has to translate it for you immediately yeah. <laughs> because I have no other way to practice it. Who am I going to practice?
2: I have a similar experience, which is I was studying Spanish and had a really great tutor. And uh, we would talk online. And the thing that he did that was great was he would always ask me questions that would increase in complexity. So in the beginning, when you start learning a language, you just start with like declarative sentence, like the ball is red, the boy is tall, my house is here. So I had those pretty well under my belt, and he knew it. And so he would start asking me questions like, what did you used to dream about? And it's like, oh, okay. oh wow, <laughs> well, now I, right, so I got to make sure I got the right tense and I have to think about a thing that used to be like this, but, you know, is not true anymore. And like he just w- he was really good at asking me questions that would force me kind of out of my comfort zone and to use new bits of the language and to express, you know, wishes and desires as opposed to, you know, declarative statements and things like that. And it was such a good technique. And it's uncomfortable because every time I'm talking to him, it's like he's constantly challenging me. Like I'm always talking about something that's really kind of difficult for me to talk about. But of course, I'm improving as I do this.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I've been doing the same thing. So, you know, my wife and I are learning simultaneously. And so when... Uh, she got to come visit me for the fourth of july i kept like probing her with questions like that mm-hmm. which i guess is fine if you're a tutor not so fine if you're your husband because <laughs> she's like oh can we speak in english for once now
2: <laughs> by the way this so this, we've been talking a lot about skill acquisition and kathy sierra wrote a wonderful book on this called uh, badass and it's that's a great book it's so absolutely. good absolutely Super recommended if you haven't picked it up. And it's a great and easy read and really insightful and talks all about this stuff.
0: You know what? I don't know why I haven't thought about bringing her on here. We need to do that. She's like perfect for talking about this. Absolutely. Yeah, she'd be a great guest. Well, I want to get some uh, resources from you offline that we can put in the show notes Mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't want to just start sitting here listing resources. But in general, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people Awesome. Any final thoughts that you'd have for people that are starting or are along this journey that you'd want to leave with? Coffee is great. <laughs> Don't be
2: afraid to caffeinate. All right. Well, uh, No, no. So uh, but more seriously, expect it to be hard. A lot of people, when they start learning a new thing, think that when they're struggling, it's their fault and that they are somehow deficient because it's hard. But this is actually just a hard thing. And so you will have lots of time where you don't know what's going on, and you feel uncomfortable, and you'll be like me, trying to form complicated Spanish sentences. And just expect that, and push through, and keep going, because you're going to be fine.
0: Coffee and push through. Yes. Sounds good. (laughs) And the coffee will help. The first one will help the second. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Where can we keep up with you online? Uh, You can follow me on Twitter with
2: the hilariously outdated uh, username R00K, which I chose when I was like 12 and has haunted me ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I tweet there and uh, that's probably good. I have a blog too, but I don't update it very much. So Twitter is probably your best bet.
0: Okay. Well, thanks again, and uh, hope to talk to you. Oh,
2: soon. oh, wait. Let me also my podcast. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so uh, I host a podcast called Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots, and it goes out every week. And so you can listen to me, Babylon, uh, much like I have here. If you enjoyed it,
0: it's funny. Every time that I think of the name of your podcast, I always think of the what is it, Rock'em Sock'em Robots? Oh, uh, yeah, the sure. Name of it? Yep. Yeah, but I think of really, really giant ones. Good. <laughs> so. That was that was our goal. Good, excellent. I'm glad I'm smart enough to figure that out. (laughs) All right, Ben, well, thanks again. Awesome, my pleasure. We have a special gift for our listeners today from our guest. Ben runs Upcase, which helps make junior Rails developers into awesome senior developers with a ton of online classes. Ben was kind enough to share a special discount code for 50% off your first month of Upcase. Just go to upcase.com slash coupons slash Code, and that discount code will be available at checkout. You don't have to memorize that URL. You can go to talkingcode.com and find the episode page with Ben, and the URL will be there in the show notes. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular... Go to talkingcode.com ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.